All right. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Get Messy podcast. I'm Liv Doomer, and I'm here with my co-host. Max Landon. Um, we're currently filming through Zoom because somebody has Miss Rona. Yeah, I got the COVID. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm honestly not feeling too hot myself, but uh, can't find a test, so could have COVID, could not. Um, but yeah, so we just want to be extra safe and we're doing Zoom right now. Um, so today's episode is going to be the first in our Get Spooky series where we cover true crime, horror, and anything spooky. Um, so where Max kind of took the reins on reality TV and pop culture, I'm going to be taking the reins on this segment because um, I know we're both totally obsessed with true crime, but I feel like I like doing Definitely. like the, the deep dives. Yeah. So for the first episode, um, I decided to choose one of the most controversial cases um, this case has so many twists and turns, but I felt like it was fitting because they did just find new information pertaining to this case as of December 22nd, so like two weeks ago. Um, so today we are going to be covering the case of the West Memphis Three. Um, you were already kind of familiar with this case, right? Yeah, so I've listened to like, I think two podcasts about the West Memphis Three, um, but that was a while ago. So like, I, I have a vague notion of everything but it definitely it's been a, it's been a little bit of time since I delved into it so I'm sure you'll tell me new things and refresh me because I, I don't really remember the specifics as much yeah I got all the receipts girl um <laughs> but I yeah I find this case really interesting because I feel like a lot of people aren't familiar with the case itself but then as soon as I start like explaining it um people kind of know like the storyline because I feel like they do you kind of use the storyline a lot in like books, TV shows, um, movies, um, but this case is really the embodiment of the satanic panic in my opinion. Um, but so for this episode, I feel like I did a lot of research um, and just decided to include a lot of information from a bunch of different angles so that we can all come to our own conclusions. Um, but I figure we can just add in our own thoughts and opinions as we go along. Um, and then I encourage our listeners to add in their thoughts, opinions, theories, so we can have an open discussion. But I do want to say everybody be respectful because at the end of the day, this is a very sensitive topic and, and we need to all respect each other. So that's my little piece I'm going to say on that. Yeah, trigger warning. If you're uh, not not into hearing about fucked up shit, you might want to get this episode, but also don't skip this episode. It's going to be a really good one. Yeah, this ain't for the pain of heart, but this is definitely for the true crime weirdos. So um, I do want to quickly shout out some sources that I used for today's video or for today's episode. So um, this is great for anybody who likes true crime or if you are interested in this case. So the HBO documentaries, Paradise Lost, there's three documentaries. They are incredible. They totally cover the case from beginning to end. Um, there's the West of Memphis documentary. That's another one that's amazing. And then there is Mara Leverett's book, Devil's Not. I have it sitting right over here <laughs> this has been like i have like so many little notes in here i look like crazy hang on like look at all my little, big ass book and look at me i have my little uh highlighted parts too oh my god did you read the whole thing uh i got like i like about to here like about eh, okay. actually a little bit further oh yeah and there's some pictures in here too um oh nice but yeah definitely recommend that book although kind of like I was telling you it was difficult to find which I thought was weird because I tried like Barnes and Nobles and I even tried smaller bookstores but they didn't have it in any of them I just kind of thought it was bizarre and then yeah and I feel like I've heard of that book name before but it's a popular book so I don't know if it's trendy and everybody's buying it which I'm like I don't think it's the case because so many people weren't familiar with the case when I was talking about it to them so I don't know what that's about, but it's hard to find. And then I did put the Damien Eccles, who is um, kind of like at the forefront of this case. 
he has written a lot of books. Um, one that's a popular one is Life After Death, and that's his memoir describing life behind bars. And I did want to shout out a couple other podcasts, Morbid and Necronomapod. And I know you you said left, what is it called? Uh, last Podcast on the Left? Yeah, Last Podcast on the Left, I think is where I first heard about it. And I think maybe My Favorite Murder did an episode too, but I definitely remember Last Podcast on the Left doing it. Yeah, because I was just going to say, I'm sure they're going to go a little bit more in depth than we are because we're just keeping it to one episode where I know a lot of other podcasts, they do like the full deep dive, of like multiple episode series. So we're just doing a quick summary. I figure we can talk, um, you know, info about the case, some fun theory. Well, I guess fun's not the right word. Interesting theories, <laughs> and then um, new info about the case. And then, yeah, I did pop in here too. Trigger warning. This is about kids and we are going to mention sexual assault. So just trigger warning. You've been warned. This is, this is a tough one. Because even like throughout here, I found myself getting like a, a little teary-eyed. I was like, oh, this is tough. Aww. I know, because I, I usually don't get all teary, but this is sad. So, okay, so let's dive into it. So, let's okay, it. this case starts on May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas at 3 p.m. Stevie Branch comes home from school with his mom, Pam Hobbs. Um, a little bit about Stevie Branch. He liked to pretend to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, and he would karate kick the air until he was exhausted. He liked to sing, and his mom called him Little Elvis. Pam, his mm -hmm. mom, has to work that evening and is getting ready. She tells him to do his homework, but he said he already did it at school. And he was just really excited to ride his new bike with his neighborhood friend, Michael Moore. Um, so Michael was kind of like the leader of their little group. They used to call him like the popular one, which I thought that was funny when I read that. I don't know why. I was just like, mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> um, they used to call him the sheriff and his dad even got him like a little badge to prove it. He was a Cub Scout and he played t-ball. So Pam was hesitant about Stevie going out and riding his bikes around with the neighborhood kids, but she was hesitant and she finally said yes. And she was like, but you need to be home by 430. Um, the boys take off on their bikes. A little while later, another neighborhood boy, Christopher Byers, comes to Stevie's home looking for him at 340. And Pam says that, you know, Stevie rode off with Michael, but they shouldn't be far off. Christopher Byers was hyperactive and naturally curious. He got his nickname Worm because he was a squirmy little thing. Um, <laughs> he enjoyed swimming and he still believed in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. He liked to play in the dirt with trucks and he liked to color. Um, so Terry Hobbs, Pam Hobbs' husband and Stevie Branch's stepfather takes Pam to work at 450. And the boys are last seen by neighbors and friends around six heading in the direction of Robin Hood Hills. So we're going to fast forward a little bit because that little time jump in between is where it gets messy. So at 8 p.m., um, John Mark Byers, the stepfather of Christopher Byers, reports his stepson missing. John Mark Byers is six foot uh, five inches and more than 200 pounds. So big boy. Um, he wears his hair in a long ponytail. <laughs> Christopher Byers was last seen at 530 cleaning the yard. Christopher Byers is um, 4'4", 50 pounds, has light brown hair and hazel eyes. Um, he's eight years old. So at 810, so like 10 minutes later, the officer responds and takes that report. At 842, that same officer is called away to a nearby Bojangles um, that reported a man who was bleeding from his face. The manager of the Bojangles um, said the man was black and appeared mentally disoriented. They said he used the bathroom and got blood all over the walls and left before the officer arrived. At 901, that same officer is called away to a house being egged. <laughs> And then at 924, that same officer, which I added a little note in here, I was like, that officer was putting at work, Henny. Okay. She was driving all over town. Beep bopping. 
uh, for real. Um, she responds to a call from Dana Moore, who is reporting her eight-year-old son, uh, Michael Moore, missing. So Michael was four foot, 60 pounds, had brown hair and blue eyes. She said she saw him with Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch. He was last seen wearing a Boy Scout shirt and hat, blue pants and tennis shoes. And then it's important to note here um, that all the boys were Boy Scouts at the time, and they actually just reached their wolf rank. So we're going to get to that later, but noted. <laughs> I was in the Boy Scouts. Were you really? Wait, okay. Wait. I was in the Cub Scouts. No way. I used to be a Girl Scout. Yeah. I, I don't remember what my last thing was. I think I was like a brownie or something. I was a, I, I was a Weeblow. So like, I think that's the one before Boy Scouts, but I, I hated it. I just did it because my friends were in it. I, I didn't cookie. last more than like a year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the guys got their wolf rank. Um, and then the officer that was looking for Michael, she like looked around um, the woods for Michael and the other boys that night. Um, but the mosquitoes drove her out of the woods. So I added this in here because we're going to get back to it. Wait, so where, where, where was this again? Uh, West Memphis, Arkansas. Arkansas, okay. It was in the South. Huh? I don't think of Arkansas as being like a muggy place, but I guess so. I really, I don't know the first thing about it. Well, they were saying like in the description that it was kind of just like, it reminded me almost of like summer here where it's just like hot. And like, if you go in the woods in the summer, like the mosquitoes are just going to be like crazy. Right. So I think it's the same kind of vibe. And then at 9 PM, um, Terry Hobbs picks up Pam Hobbs from work. He immediately walks into her place of work without talking to her, just like, walks right past her doesn't say anything goes over to the phone and makes a phone call so pam kind of like doesn't really think anything of it she goes over to the car expecting to see amanda who is her younger daughter and stevie but she sees only amanda and amanda says like stevie's gone terry comes back over to her and tells her that stevie's missing and that he had just called the police so at 9 30 that officer responds um to take the report that stevie branch is missing Stevie was 4'2", 60 pounds, had blonde hair and blue eyes. The officer helps to search for 30 minutes for Stevie Branch before the mosquitoes drove her out of the woods. So that's oh two God. accounts of people, you know, it's literally- fucking mosquitoes. <laughs> These mosquitoes. <laughs> but I just noted this because we'll get into it as when we get into theories and things, but noted. So most of the family members continue to search that night, but an official police search um, couldn't start until the next day. So the next day on May 6, 1993, at 8 a.m., the official police search began. Um, the police began searching Robin Hood Hills, um, the last place where they were seen, and they kind of suspected the boys would be there. It's a wooded area that separated the suburban homes from the highway and truck stops. Um, and then most, most kids would play there, but their parents would warn them not to. It kind of made me think of like, I feel like when I was growing up, I would go over friends' houses that lived in suburban areas, and there would always be like a little wooded area that like, would separate their homes from the highways. I don't know if you had anywhere like that when you were younger. Yeah, I mean, I've, been, yeah, I kind of grew up in like a similar type of area. I mean, it wasn't super close to the highways, but there were a lot of like little like places in the cut and little like where there were like little like forests and like creeks and stuff. We used to like, you know, go in there to smoke pot and like do stuff That's, like I that. I feel like I was always but, out there causing some kind of trouble. And then like, my yeah, exactly. Would be like, don't go back there. And it's like, you're always back there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was just like, okay, that kind of felt like relatable when I read that. Um, so the woods were thoroughly searched, but nothing turned up. A juvenile officer, um, Steve Jones, he stayed behind and noticed a boy's black tennis shoe floating in a ditch. So in the woods, there was kind of like this uh, man-made 
river ditch thing, if you will. It was kind of a runoff from the Mississippi River, and that's where the mm -hmm. tennis shoe was floating. So he called over Sergeant Allen, who was leaning over to try and see slash like grab the shoe, and he accidentally fell into the water, which I'm like... <laughs> What, how do you do that? And he actually fell into the water. So this was at 1 30. Um, so Sergeant Allen was then like trying to get back up, kind of catch his balance and his foot caught on something. So once his foot releases from the mud, whatever it was caught on releases as well. And a child's lifeless naked body rises to the surface. The time is now 1 45. I, oh that has God. to be like absolutely terrifying. Like if you think your foot is caught on like a stick or like a rock or something, and then like a child's body like floats up, I would freak out. Yeah, and like you fell into the water with like, not to be insensitive, but like dead person juice all over <laughs> you. <laughs> like, I don't know, I hate it. <laughs> yeah, hang on, it's gonna get so much worse. Okay, so okay. 2.15, um, crime tape is up and Detective Brian Ridge volunteers to get into the water, which this guy is like questionable later on, but honestly, this act like, god bless him because that water was murky it was like swamp water they just found one kid in there and like they know he's, they're gonna find more so um he gets in the water he hops in clothes and all and he has to crawl around on his hands and knees in this murky water that's like a couple feet high so it's like kind of like almost up to his face and like feel around in the murky water and see what he can find mm -hmm. i would i would know I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. No. I couldn't do it. Uh -uh. Someone else would have to. Absolutely not. So wait, sorry. This might be my like COVID brain, just not remembering everything. So at this point in time, all of those kids from earlier, all th three or four of those kids have been reported missing. Um, Three. And yeah, all three of them have three. been reported missing. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So Brian Ridge, he's in there. He's crawling around in the murky water, feeling whatever he can find. And he thinks he's probably going to find one of the kids, but he finds a stick, which like, uh, I, I don't know. I would just like freak out if like you're trying to find something and you like find a stick. But anyway, the stick was holding down the missing kids clothing. Um, so they found all of the clothing from the missing kids, except for a sock and two pairs of underwear, which creepy. Um, weirdly, all yeah. of the kids pants were inside out. That part doesn't seem that weird because if they were to like, you know, remove their pants, that seems like normal. But the weird part is that they were zippered and buttoned. So that's just like weird that mm -hmm. they were like inside out zippered and buttoned and then they were like pinned down in this like river ditch thing with a stick. Um, so right, that is weird. Yeah, it was at this time that Ridge removed the boy's body from the water. I don't think he was really thinking like forensically. I think he was just thinking more like, um, I don't know, he just kind of felt bad that like this little boy was like, had passed away and was like floating around in the water and he was like, he should really just like be set up on the side is this water like moving or is it all still water um I think it's almost like I don't think it's like fast like rapid I think it's more like if you think of like a stream or something like it's like, like slightly feet. moving yes yeah okay so, so there is movement but deep enough to be like up to your neck though that's gotta be that's a lot of water he wasn't standing he was on um hands and knees oh right okay gotcha it's only like two or three feet yeah and you're oh god doing it in the pitch dark well he was doing this during the day oh shit i'm sorry my covid <laughs> brain is okay. just forgetting all the things but okay, okay. It, but, well, but if it was if it was during the day then like wouldn't they have like a more like clean like view of everything or is the water just really gross and murky it's real murky. So, 
it's okay very, yeah so it's probably like not moving at all no it's like it, yeah it's like if it was moving it was very slow but like i'm almost thinking like swamp vibes yes that's very, it's very okay swampy. yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah so you set the boy's um body up on the bank and then he hops back in the water and starts feeling around again that's when he finds the body of stevie branch um and that first body that he found was of michael moore and it's uh, important to note that even Michael Moore and C.V. Branch, they were both hogtied with shoelaces and both severely beaten. But C.V. Branch, um, he had bite marks on the side of his face. That was the, that was the point of difference, which is really crazy. So next, was Ridge, it, was, okay. sorry, I was just going to say, were they like, are you going to, you might go into this later. Are they like uh, animal bite marks or human bite marks? Well, that's funny. You should ask that. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So it looks human. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Ew. So okay. Ridge hops back in the water to find the third and final body of Christopher Byers, who again was beaten and hogtied. Um, but the main difference with Christopher Byers is that he was mutilated. So he had his scrotum cut off and his penis skinned. Oh, yeah. That was the part of the story I remembered. Yeah, that's rough. So the other three weren't mutilated. It was just the, the one boy. Yes, except for Stevie Byers, like, face having the bite marks. No, it was just Christopher right. Byers. And so they started this search at 1.45 a.m. and did... Yeah. That's why I was so confused. Okay, <laughs> I wrote down a.m. All right, so 1.45 p.m. And they found the third body. Do we know the timeline? Uh, hang on. Did I just trying to think of how long this guy was, like, crawling around in the swamp water. It had to be for a while because they didn't say when he find the, found the final body, but it said that at 320, there were two bikes found 30 miles or 30 yards away um, underwater. Okay. So it didn't say when he hopped out. Um, but they okay. did say that at 4 p.m., almost two hours after the first body was found. So I guess the two bo- first body was, well, yeah, we know that the first body was found around two o'clock, that the mm-hmm. coroner was finally called to pronounce the boys dead at scene. So all the while, the boys have been covered with a plastic sheet. And in the Arkansas summer heat, um, like flies and larvae had already started forming on them. And decomposition had rapidly increased. So this really threw a wrench in determining the time of death. Um, So yeah, that was kind of a goof up on their part. What was the, um, so how long were they missing versus how long were they found? So... uh, the boys were last seen at 6 p.m. by like neighbors and friends. That's like the confirmed account. And then so it was the next day. Yes, they were reported missing at 8 p.m. And then they were found that next day at 2 p.m. Uh, two p- okay, gotcha. Yeah. So it was like, you know, like. It's pretty quick, honestly. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it was like almost a day. I mean, a little less then. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so they called the coroner, and then he pronounced them dead at scene. So the other thing that was really weird about this crime scene was a lack of blood. So luminol was sprayed um, all over the scene, and that indicates where blood is. And there was blood indicated on the bank, but not nearly enough for the injuries sustained by the boys. They found one fingerprint in the mud and one partially obliterated footprint. Um, and both were sent off to crime labs, and they were tested against like dozens of fingerprints, but there was never a match made. So... As soon as the boys were found, um, the police began to suggest this could be the work of the occult or somehow related to a satanic ritual. Just, I guess, because the mutilation or maybe because of like how they were positioned, because it definitely was really creepy, like how 
they were hogtied. Um, and for anybody who's not familiar with what I mean by when I say that, like it was right wrist to left um, uh, ankle and then left wrist to right ankle. So like crisscross oh. behind their back. And then they, oh, their like, back was like arched. Yeah, it was definitely what? creepy. And they were just essentially like tossed in the water. Yeah, like they were, so they were under the water, like, but they were pinned down by sticks. Okay, so was, were they like, and their clothes were pinned down by sticks too. Yeah, so they were and, naked when they were found. And it was all, so I'm just trying to get an idea for, so was it like, it wouldn't have been like sticks sticking out of the water or anything like that. No. Okay, I gotcha. No, because it was like two or three feet of water. Like it was, it was deep enough. Like it was, it'd probably be, I would assume like up to your knees or a little bit higher in the water. So mm-hmm. they were like laying down flat, I'm assuming with like the stick pinning them down, but I don't think it was like a big old stick. Just seems so weird. Like, Cause I, I wouldn't think, I mean, if you're like, I don't know how you would jump to the occult. Cause like, I mean, if there's a body that, you know, you're purposely like seeking it down, then I feel like that indicates that you don't want the body found. Right. At least for a while. So I don't know. Just I, weird. Carry I on. I was kind of in the same <laughs> plate. I was like, I don't know where your how your brain jumps to that. But then again, we are like in the South and like I know it's a very religious area. So maybe literally anything weird, they're just like, all right, Satan worshipers. Yeah. Um so they begin to lean into this theory pretty hard. And we see this as early as when they go to document some of the paperwork from the crime scene. Um, so the case number was uh, labeled that it was ended in 666. And everybody made like a big fuss about this. They were like, oh my God, it ends in 666, like Satan, uh, like the occult, all this craziness. And then come to find out it was like supposed to end in 555. So somebody just went in there and like changed the end of the case number to like try and fit this narrative. Um, oh really seriously oh they went in and changed it because i could also see how like if you're like doing this on like a a typewriter or something fives kind of look like sixes you know i guess i don't know but yeah no they they you'll see that there's more to it um i'm just gonna say like that the negligence in this case is like super wild to me um so like another instance is when they were documenting the crime scene, they said that Michael Moore was the one who had sustained the castration. Um, and they like literally fully documented this in all of their paperwork that it was Michael Moore. And then, whoops, they had the wrong person. And then they realized it was Christopher Byers. Uh, and then she's like, oh, go ahead. Sorry, this is like, maybe, I don't know, maybe TMI to even ask but like so you mentioned that the the bodies were in like a rapid pretty a rapid in a rapid state of decay based on you know the environment that they were in so like were they like easily recognizable or I think they were because I was listening to an interview with uh Terry Hobbs that he gave not too long ago um who was Stevie Branch's uh stepfather and they asked, like, uh, whoever was doing the interview, like one of the podcast people, um, they were like, oh, did you have to go and identify the body? And he said, no, like you just gave them photos of like the kids. Cause when they reported them missing, they gave them photos and I guess they could identify them from there. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, plus it was only like one day. Right. Right. I just, I was just wondering, cause you mentioned that it was more rapid than usual, but. I think it just okay. goes with like trying to figure out the time of death. 
Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's like another example of how they goofed. And there was just like a ton of more instances in this case. Like if I were to literally touch on all of them, we would be here all day, but I just wanted to mention a couple. Um, so all of those really made me question the police's credibility. So Gary Gitchell, the head of the department's detective division really takes over this case. I have some thoughts on him. We're going to get into it. Uh, so nope. speak he, on it. well, we'll get into it closer to the end because you'll just like see how you'll, you're going to see how ridiculous this case is. Um, uh, what, what's his name again? So I can make a uh, mental note. Mr. Gary Gitchell. Gary Gitchell. Sounds like he's up to no good. <laughs> yeah. Well, he thought that the less information about the case the public knew, the better for detectives, um, which that is true, because like if they brought someone in that they thought was a suspect and they knew something about the case, um, then they knew they had their person. Um, but unfortunately, the police that were recovering the bodies, their band broadcast, so like how they were communicating with each other over the walkie talkies, could be tapped into by anybody. Um, so literally all the news outlets already knew all the details about the case. Um, while waiting on autopsies from the assistant medical examiner, Lisa, I'm going to say her last name wrong, so forgive me, but Sakivik, I don't know. Spell it. Uh, S-A-K-E-V-I-C-I-U-S. I feel like you're not going to. Okay. Yeah. No. no. You know. as me? Okay. So Lisa, Lisa Sakivikis, I don't know. Well, Sakivik. I tried. Sakivik. Lisa S. We gave it her all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, she, her, she was a hang hangout at the crime lab. Um, she let Gitchell know that the knots used to tie buyers and more were different than the knot used on CB Branch. Um, she also found skin and possible cuticle in one of the ligatures. And then I want to let you know some of the leads that the police came to before they uh, decided on their ultimate suspects. Because I like read through all these leads and I was like, why did they not investigate any of these? So the first, the boy after the, uh, the day after the boys were found, the manager at Bojangles um, reached back out to the police because they thought that the man covered in blood could have been connected to the murders. So they found sunglasses in the bathroom, um, potentially left by the man, and gave them to the police. Police took blood samples, um, left, the, uh, left on the bathroom wall, and they wanted to run DNA, but we found out that that evidence was lost. <laughs> how do they just lose all this evidence i feel like i hear about this all the time like yeah, where was, does it go the track? I was like, literally i was like watching one of the documentaries and like the police officers like sitting on the stand like testifying and they're like yeah so where'd that evidence go he's like yeah i lost it we're like i'm like what um so yeah that's pretty much where that leads in lead ends they just don't follow up on it ever again i'm like what hmm. so that um, guy from the bojangles covered in blood never followed up on him didn't seem like an issue it was non-issue you know mm. three boys i love the jangles like, side note I miss i've it a never lot. had it it's so good next time we go down to virginia i'll have to have it some. it's so good so on may 7th two days after the murders aaron hutchinson um said he saw michael moore talking to a black man in a maroon car on the day of the murders he said a black man told michael that that michael's mother told him to take michael home Michael ended up getting in the car with the man. And according to Aaron, Dana Moore says Michael came straight home. Um, and again, this lead just dies here. <laughs> they, like, didn't think to follow up on it at all. So it was the same day that they were all hanging out. This guy gets in some random maroon car. 
Allegedly, yeah. Now Allegedly. I would say like Michael's story or not Michael's stories, um, Aaron's stories aren't always credible and we're gonna find that out a little bit later. But I did think it was interesting that like he didn't know about the Bojangles incident and that there could have been a connection and they just like didn't think to follow up on it at all. Cause well, did the guy from Bojangles was he reported to be driving a maroon car? Did I miss that? No, they don't they don't know. Gotcha. Yeah. But so just, is, how old is Aaron? Uh, Aaron was in their class, so I'm assuming he's eight. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and then multiple residents reported seeing an unfamiliar white van in the area at the time of the murders. Description of the driver varied from middle-aged white male with gray hair to young white male with blonde hair, which to me, those descriptions, like, they acted like they were, like, wildly different descriptions, but, like, I feel like if I was looking at someone from the distance, like, I, I don't know. I could Yeah, through, like, like, a car window. Yeah, I could easily goof up someone older with gray hair or, like, younger with blonde hair, you know? Yeah, I'd have to be, like, standing right next to them to, like, really, like, make that. Like, I couldn't, like, look across the street and be like, oh, that guy's old or young. Or, right. I don't, I don't know. They acted like those were crazy different descriptions. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Wild. Wild. Um, so Was it just the- a... Sorry. I, I, You're good. I feel like I keep cutting you off. Um, was the... Was it, like, a like a utility van did it have anything on it or was it just like a random white van they didn't say they just said a white van i'm assuming kind of like a utility van but they didn't really describe because um the police investigated the vans in the area not not the white ones just any van and then they they just gave up on that they just they just let that lead fly away okay Now, now this one really baffles me like i'm truly baffled um so four days following the murders uh, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland left town abruptly and they moved to Oceanside, California. Police learned that Morgan um, had an ice cream route in the victim's neighborhood. On May 17th, Morgan and Holland were given polygraphs and both were determined deceptive in their answers when asked about the murders. After questioning, Morgan blurted out that he had been hospitalized for drug and alcohol abuse and that he might have committed the murders. He then recanted the statement. Um, both submitted blood and urine samples, which were sent to the West Memphis police police and um that's where that lead ends so they didn't match their dna didn't match anything oh no they didn't test it oh they just okay more evidence that just i guess got lost you know um yeah literally isn't that crazy because when i first read that i was like wait a minute what (laughs) i feel like whoever the officers are that are like actually like i don't really know how police like cases work other than what I see on TV but I bet the people who are like finding the evidence and like just like following the case on the ground just kept being like what yeah I'm sure because so okay let me give you um an idea of the people they decided to investigate like these are the people they decided to take their time into um someone who missed church on Sunday (laughs) that's literally all I did was that the day that they were looking for oh, well, the kids? I, mm, that I don't know. I do have to double check on that. But no, they said that the weird part was that he missed church and that they thought this was a satanic related crime. Oh. Well, <laughs> he might have just not been feeling well, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You have people who literally- I don't confess. think I would like living in Westminster much. Yeah, West Memphis. Yeah, West Memphis. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like literally like in a fog. I'm paying attention and I'm taking notes. It's okay. West Memphis. Um, but that's just like a little idea of like the people they um, 
we're investigating. So now I want to talk about Jerry Driver. And the way I wrote this down was Jerry fucking Driver because he's, we were going to get into it. (laughs) We're going to get into it. So while the police were having their discussions on the murders, they decided to call in Jerry Driver, the most knowledgeable man in the county when it came to satanic worship. He was the most knowledgeable. Um, How'd they figure that? well, Well, good question. I tried to look up and see, you know, what formal education he had. None. Oh. Yeah, just none. He was just, you know, whatever felt right, I guess. Was he like a preacher, like a religious figure, anything like that? Or did he just. No, he was just like a juvenile detention officer who had just self proclaimed um, satanic, you know, expert. He didn't write a book or anything? <laughs> Nothing. And then he started giving classes on it too. I'm like, well, damn, I guess I can be an expert in anything, huh? Right. I'm about to just start showing up to the colleges and pretending like I'm a professor of like, I don't even fucking know what. Literally. So driver wrote down eight teenagers name on a piece of paper and said that he was certain that by the time this was over, one or more of the names on the list would be charged with the murders. Um, so two of the names on that list were Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. So a little bit about them. Uh, both Damien and Jason grew up in Lakeshore, which was one of the poorest neighborhoods in the county and ranked upon the nation's um, poorest 10%. So rough area. Um, Mm -hmm. Damien Eccles was definitely a troubled kid who struggled with mental health issues. Um, I'm not going to get into like all of his past because, you know, he was definitely like in and out of hospitals and stuff, but um, there's a lot of resources that do. So if you read like Devil's Knot or check out the documentaries, they'll kind of dive into it. But um, I just kind of like feel for him like he really has just been like through it um and I kind of feel for him because he was like such an outcast like because so okay imagine like you're living in this country town and then you're someone who you wear black you listen to rock music you like horror like he liked to study Wicca so he was into like you know like witches and all that stuff and everybody just Mm -hmm. like thought he was like super weird basically when he was like did it say why he was like institutionalized or any like diagnoses or anything like that we're gonna get into it. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're gonna get into it. Um, yeah, so and there might have been instances before this, but this was one of the biggest instances instances. Um, and I did want to add in here, like, I do recognize because everybody always kind of gets into like his attitude when he was like 18, because he was all over the news everywhere. He kind of acted like a smart ass, not gonna lie. Um, and he really didn't like law enforcement, but I can kind of relate. Like I feel like I was literally exactly the same at 18. Yeah, I was an asshole. Yeah, he like he would like flip off the cameras and stuff, and everybody was like, "Oh my god, he's like flipping off the cameras." I'm like, "Dude, I would have did the same thing." Yeah, especially if you're like, well, I guess we'll get into it, but yeah, charge with something you don't think you did. Literally, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I just feel like I kind of resonated with him. So a year before the murders happened, police started keeping an eye on Damien Eccles after he dated Deanna Holcombs. Um, so Holcombs claimed that they broke up, and Damien started harassing her and one of her male friends. She said Eccles um, threatened to kill the boy and burn her house down. Oh. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but like, I feel like I've definitely said some really crazy shit before. Like, I've just said some crazy shit. I've said some crazy shit too. So yeah, then her mother <laughs> said that um, Eccles was trying to get her into doing dark magic, which I'm like, I don't know where she got that from, but like, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining this like crazy southern mom like really freaking out because her daughter is like dating this <laughs> kid. Oh, uh, what is, do, do we know her, the mom's name? Oh, we don't. What do you think? Oh, it dang is? it, Karen. 
Um, or like Judy, Judith. <laughs> that feels right. So yeah. in 1992, a caseworker working with Damien um, found out that the breakup happened after Deanna's mom insisted it. Um, Deanna still wanted to be with Damien, but when the mom found out that they were still together, she threatened to take the girl to a psychiatrist. Well, like that's that's kind of why I was asking a little bit earlier about the guy's um, mental stuff because I mean, like, not that long ago, like you could get sent to a I don't know if it was as as recent as this, but like I know, like definitely, like back in like the like the like eighties and the seventies, and maybe even into the nineties too, like people you could like essentially like get sent to a like psychiatric hospital for like smoking pot or like something like that and your parents can just send you there and you don't have any that's pretty much what happened like super violent like or not violent but like people that like act you're lumped in with everyone that you know actually does have you know serious mental illness illnesses like it would that would be terrifying yeah that's pretty much what happened with him like when I was reading through all the police reports and things like the way that they noted like that he had black hair, that he wore black, or that he painted his nails black, or listened to rock music, like, that was all evidence as to why he should be, like, institutionalized, and I'm, like, I'm, like, hello, <laughs> I'm literally, like, yeah, right, <laughs> like, sitting here in, like, all black, um, so, yeah, a few, few weeks later, Deanna runs away, and officers find the teenagers partially nude from the waist down at Damien's home, so you can probably guess what's going on. They were just trying to fuck. <laughs> Damn <Let> it. <laughs> um, so, uh, even though uh, nothing was taken, the two were charged with burglary and sexual misconduct, then taken to county jail. Like, could you ever imagine? Charged with burglary for not taking anything. I think the mom probably like said that he or she took stuff from her house, even though there was nothing taken. That's so weird. They were both charged with it, or just him? No, both charged. So they were both taken to jail. Um, Deanna was released though. Damien, on the other hand, his home was searched, um, and because they found notebooks with pentagrams and found, like, you know, all of his black clothing, found his rock music, found books by Stephen King, <laughs> um, he oh, was, yeah. I know, I'm literally here, like, looking, looking at my books, there's, like, <laughs> by Stephen King over here, um, he was ordered to a juvenile detention facility. Uh, this was just the beginning of the police targeting him, like, if you look, get into it, like, there's so many crazy things, like, he tried to move out of the state, basically, and they, like, tracked him down and like tried to get him back in jail like there were so many crazy things that happened um and they hospitalized him multiple times um and then he was finally released in september 1992 but he still had to visit with his therapist and then i did want to note that the therapist that he saw they didn't seem concerned with him at all so they came to the conclusion that he was just interested in wicca and was a really troubled kid they diagnosed him with major depression and the possibility of bipolar um Mm. And then I also just wanted to let you know some of the signs that you're in the occult, just in case, you know, you were interested. What to watch out for. These are per, <laughs> uh, per Jerry Driver. <laughs> Jerry so, fucking Driver. Jerry fucking Driver. Um, playing fantasy games, such as Dungeons and Dragons, so you better watch the fuck out. You're... <laughs> better get my boyfriend. He might be, the hell up. Might be a Satan worshiper. If you listen to rock and roll, Satan. Um, if you own a Ouija board, which I literally made tea and look at like, look at what I made tea in. I don't fuck with Ouija boards, but that is ridiculous. Hell no, I will never do one. What? Who knows? Maybe I'm in the occult and I don't even know it. 
and then reading books on paganism or magic. All of, if you have all those, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> all of them but the Ouija board. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so although Damien dropped out of school, Jason remained in school and he was actually a really good student. Um, Jason believed in God. He only had one incident when he was younger in 1990, when he was 12, where he was playing in a local clubhouse. And like the way he kind of explained it was like, it was like an abandoned, um, like warehouse or home or something that all the kids would hang out in. And the police found him there and they charged him with breaking and entering and criminal mischief, which I'm like, seriously. Cause like, I feel like again, like when Probably I was the younger, biggest shit ever criminal mischief. For real. And like when I was younger, there were tons of like places me and my friends would hang out that were like abandoned buildings or like abandoned, I don't know, like places. I don't know if you had that either. Or not really. Were we just. Yeah, no, definitely. (laughs) And I feel like when like people like did get in trouble for stuff like that, it was always like, it was usually pretty like low key. Like I, I feel like it was just like all about who your parents were. And it doesn't like sound like this kid has a great like presence in this town. Yeah. Well, and then. Fogelman, who at the time was a juvenile judge, and later on, he's the prosecution for their case, which is crazy to me. He placed Jason on probation and um, ordered him to pay $450 in restitution, which he knew him and his mom did not have that money. Um, So the alternative, Steve Jones um, was saying that he could go to training school for two years. Mind you, this is literally all over him being found in a clubhouse. And but Jason's mother wasn't having that. Um, and I really like Jason's mother. Like if you ever watch the documentaries and you see Jason's mom, she's really cool. Like she, you could tell she's definitely had it rough, um, but she does like everything for her son. Like the whole time she's fighting for his innocence. Like she'll do whatever she can to get the best lawyers for him. Like she's cool. I like her. Um, and at the time, Steve says, I know you're trying to get a cult started. And Jason's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> Jason's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Stay away from me, Jerry fucking driver. <laughs> Literally. So I just just to clarify again, and I'm sorry. So Damien was the one who was like the one that was um in and out of the like uh the institutions. Yeah. And and then Jason was too, but it was mostly because of the court. Yeah, well. No, Jason wasn't um, put in and out of institutions. He just, okay. That was literally his only incident that he was charged with. Jason gotcha. was actually like a really good kid. He just happened to be best friends with Damien. Okay. Yeah. Um, so on May 9th, Damien um, said that, okay, this is like kind of like his alibi. So on May 9th, Damien said that him and Jason went to Jason's uncle's house to mow the lawn. Damien later called his father to pick him up at the laundromat. They were picked up at 6 p.m. Jason and Dominie, and Dominie is like um, Damien's girlfriend, were dropped home and then they all went home. And then on May 10th, an interview the next day, um, his his story changed a little bit, which is kind of weird. He said that him, Jason, and Dominie went to Jason's uncle's house to mow the lawn. Later, Damien's mom picked him up, not his dad, from the laundromat. They dropped Dominie at home and then from three to five went to the Sanders house which I guess is just like a, a neighbor in there because they lived in a trailer park. Um, okay. After they went home, um, he spoke to this girl, Holly George, on the phone for the rest of the evening. Throughout the case, there were a lot of inconsistencies in his alibi, but for most of it, like his friends and family corroborated. And um, on the particular day of the murders, it was confirmed that he was at the Sanders house that evening with his family. That's like, that like freaks me out so much. Like people like, 
like if I ever get like accused like falsely accused of like murder someone being like where were you and like having to have a consistent alibi because like like if you weren't expecting it how would you even like remember you know you wouldn't like make those mental notes well and that's I can't remember what I did like, two days ago it's like his story changes slightly but there's always someone there with him or like someone that can be like yeah and like even when they were corroborating it they were all kind of like yeah like he was here I just don't know if it was that day but like yeah so everyone tries right. to act like that was super sketchy but like dude I don't know if I'm doing the same shit every day I don't know what day it is you know right um, get confused. yeah so next we're going to talk about Vicki Hutchinson and you heard that name before because she is Aaron Hutchinson's mom. So she was working as an unofficial informant for the police, which I don't know how that's legal, but whatever. <laughs> she befriended Aaron Hutchinson. Wait, Aaron Hutchinson was. He said that Michael Moore talked to the black guy in the maroon car. Oh, the, the eight year old, the young, yes. the young kid. Okay. Yeah. God, this is his this mom. seems like a family of nosy people. Well, you're going to find out why they were so nosy. There may or may not have been a $35,000 reward for anybody with information. Oh. You know, just, just a little something. That's a pretty big deal. Well, she said it never crossed her mind. Oh, I'm sure it didn't. <laughs> no. um, anyway, so she was working as an unofficial informant for the police. She befriended um, this guy, JC, J- oh my God, Jesse Miss Kelly. Um, he was friends with Jason and Damien. I kind of feel like a, friends is a strong word. They seemed almost more like they just kind of like knew each other. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I feel like they really, the news really made this story like they were all besties, but like it doesn't really seem like that way. So anyway, she requested a meeting with Damien and Damien and Jason came over to Vicky's trailer, but within 15 minutes, his mom came to pick him up. Uh, Damien didn't drive, just random. But, and that's, this is also important to the story that Damien didn't drive. So Hutchinson claims that this is the beginning of an eight day romance. So she said Damien picked her up and invited her, um, or no, Damien invited her to an SBAT. I might be saying that wrong, but it's a gathering for witches. Do you know of that word or no? No. Me neither. Well, I don't go to gatherings for witches, but <laughs> anyway, this wait, is- Wait, so this girl's, this eight-year-old's mom is hanging out with this teenager? <laughs> which I'm like isn't that weird how how old is he at this point do he's we know 18. he's 18 and she's probably like what like mm, they didn't say but I'm assuming she's not 18 yeah that's so sketchy yeah and she's and how, like, like an an, in, like, an informant for the police that's uh, an unofficial informant so I don't know what she's doing okay continue Sketch. <laughs> um, so anyway, she reported that on May 19th, Damien picked her up in a red Ford Escort, which, side note, Damien didn't drive, again, repeat, Damien did not drive, uh, but he picked her up somehow in a red Ford Escort with Jesse, and they drove to a field north of Marin, which I guess is just like a town. Um, yeah, when, I remember this part. Yeah, so when she got out of the car, there were about 10 young faces. Their faces and arms were painted black, and they began to take off their clothes and touching each other. Offended, she asked Damien to take her home, but she couldn't provide names of anybody that was there because they went by nicknames of Lucifer, Spider, and Snake. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think we should just start going by those names. What do you think? Okay. I want to be... I call Spider. What, what's your... <laughs> okay. I, was, I want snake, I think. Okay. Um, so on May 27th, her son, Aaron, these two, they're, 
they're kind of wild. So Aaron said that he and the boys um, that were murdered had a clubhouse in the woods and would spy on five men who gathered in the woods. Um, Aaron said the men would sit in a circle, chant, um, sing songs about the devil, and do what men and ladies do. Um, these stories would begin to evolve into he watched the boys get murdered. And then eventually he was the one who mutilated Christopher Byers. And there was apparently a black man there holding a gun to his head. Um, oh. These stories just kept on evolving. So honestly, it's like these- a little eight year old, like. Exactly. Or circa eight years old, like. <laughs> yeah. So like, like- n- none of these were credible. Um, but later we find out that the neighbors and the trailer park actually just saw him at the trailer park all day. So he never left the trailer park. And all of this, so he's part of the, he's at the trailer park and the boys were all playing in the suburbs, right? Or were um, the boys also part of the trailer park community? No, they were in the suburb, but they go to school together. So that's why gotcha. the maroon car thing, since that was the first thing he stated, I do think that's a li- like, not that it's necessarily credible, but I, I'm just shocked they didn't look into it. But like, um... Yeah, no, he just kept on going with his stories. Um, and then the next day, Vicky handed police a cheap pewter earring cast in the shape of a human skull with a snake slithering out of one of the eye sockets. She claimed that Damien dropped it while visiting her house, and Aaron said it was the same as one of the men would wear out in the woods. Okay. <laughs> that was literally my reaction. Were, was his, were his ears pierced? Um, his ears were pierced. Okay. But I was already trying to poke holes in this little eight-year-old story. Well, that was from Vicky. Vicky said that part. Oh, Vicky, yeah, okay. Vicky girl. Um, and then on May 29th, the police gave Vicky a tape recorder to catch what Damien was saying when he came over. Um, they ended up just saying the tape wasn't clear and then it disappeared. They couldn't they didn't know what happened to the tape. Everything just keeps on disappearing. <laughs> and on June 2nd, uh, Vicky was polygraphed about her experiences and it was determined she was telling the truth. And I feel like we should also, like, take a second to talk about the fact that, like, polygraphs are not 100% accurate at all. Yeah. And they're completely, at least in this year of our Lord, 2022, they're inadmissible in court or admissible? What is it? When they're not? Oh, yeah, you you can't use it. Yeah. Yeah. Inadmissible, right? I think. Okay. We'll go with that. Um, But, yeah, no, this is prime example of, like... (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't trust them. And honestly, again, this just makes me question the police's credibility because we're gonna get we're gonna get to Miss Vicky later on. Um, but so moving on, Jesse Miss Kelly had a reputation for being a troublemaker. Um, on June third, Jesse Miss Kelly was taken in for questioning. And just to give you a little bit about uh, Jesse Miss Kelly, he had an IQ of seventy, which is like way below average. Um, and when they asked him to sign his name for his Miranda rights, he didn't know how to sign his name. Oh shit. Yeah, so that's just like, just like a little idea of like where he was. Um, he didn't have a lawyer, and he also didn't have a parent present. Um, and it reminds me a lot of the interview from like Making a Murderer. I don't know if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. one, where like no. they they brought in someone who you know was you know just like struggling mentally, and like they really pounded him for hours and hours for interrogation. He didn't have a parent present, didn't have an attorney present, and like it's really just not fair. Yeah, so, it's, it's honest. Okay. I was just going to say, it's also like really common for, or it's been a pretty common police procedure where like, if you have someone, even if you are like, a, you know, 
sound, you know, mind and body and all of that, if you're interrogated for, you know, upwards of 24 hours and, you know, stuff is just screamed at you and repeated constantly, a lot of times people will just kind of say whatever, you know, you want them to say to kind of get out of that situation. Yeah. Yeah, like a totally coarse, like, confession. But mm-hmm. um, So he was interrogated for hours before his interview was finally recorded. So, which is bizarre. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Jesse Miss Kelly um, eventually confesses that Damien and Jason committed the murders and that he was present for them. Um, so there were a lot of issues with his story. So he kept saying that this all happened in the morning when we know that that's not the case because all three boys attended school that day, the day of the murders. Um, and mm-hmm. when the police kind of let him know that that's clearly not what happened, he started saying things like, oh, the boys skipped school. And then he kept saying that the boys were tied with rope when we know that they were tied with their shoestrings. And then he kept saying that their hands were tied with rope and that they were kicking their feet all up in the air, but that's like not possible because they were hogtied. Um, he even goes on to say that Christopher Byers was choked to death, but the man- medical examiner says that there's absolutely no evidence of choking. I was going to ask, and if, do you, if you're going to get to it, we can just exit this part out, but um, have the, uh, were the, have, have the cause of deaths been um, identified yet? We're going to get to it. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, so yeah, his confession was like really bizarre and in my opinion was completely coerced. Cause just like he would say something and then they would kind of be like, no. And then he would like try again and then like get the right answer. Um, it was just weird. You can find the transcripts and more detailed accounts of it. Um, but this is just one of the biggest pieces of evidence against Damon and Jason, which is weird. Um, and this actually led to their arrests. Can you believe that? That like someone going in and like having a course confession leads to someone's arrest. Mm-hmm. Like, crazy. um, so following this confession, Miss Kelly was arrested for the murders of Byers Branch and more. On June 5th, Judge Rainey signed arrest and search warrants to be executed at night um, for Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Under Arkansas state law though, night searches um, aren't, aren't really supposed to happen unless it's a special condition, like the location is hard to approach during the day or that there's a threat to the officers. The boys were watching a movie um, with Michelle, his Damien's sister and Dominique, his girlfriend, when the police came in and arrested them. And this part just like seems so innocent to me, but like when um, Jason was uh, watching Damien get arrested, he was like, I know Damien, like he doesn't do drugs. And then the officers were like, this isn't about drugs. Oh like, shit. So Jason literally thought that this was like about them thinking that Damien did drugs. Um, yeah, he had, and Jason had no idea that he was gonna be arrested too. So they went in and then arrested him as well. Um, so Damien and Jason were both charged on three counts of capital murder and um, Damien was 18, but 16-year-old Jason was not allowed to make a phone call or have an attorney. So his mom, like, had no idea about it at first, which is crazy. Oh, so he was the only one that's under 18. Um, Or is Damien also under 18? No, Damien was 18, and I think Jesse Miss Kelly was younger, too. I want to say I think he was, like, 16 or 17. Okay. And then at the time, like, of their arrest, there was absolutely no physical evidence linking them to the crime. So it's not like terrifying that like literally people could just say you did something and you get arrested. Wild. So Judge David Burnett, who oversaw the case and determined um, that Jesse Miss Kelly would be tried separate from Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, and they would all be tried as adults. 
As far as physical evidence, there really wasn't much. Uh, red and green fibers were found at the scene of the crime that were microscopically similar with fibers found in Damien and Jason's homes. But these fibers could be found in almost any home in Arkansas, according to the crime lab. Yeah, fibers are now um, inadmissible in court too, or admissible, however, whatever the right one is. Yeah, that seemed really wild to me because I'm like, you could literally get like a fiber from anything. Yeah, I think it's like a more recent thing because I used to watch like, um, what's it called? Like Dateline and stuff like that. And they would always talk about fibers, but now you can't use that in court. Yeah. There was also um, the blue candle wax. So blue candle wax was found melted on one of the boys' shirts. And, and blue candle was found in Dominique's home. So Damien's girlfriend's home. And it was found melted to a book in Damien's home. So there was multiple accounts of blue candle wax. But these candles, even though they were consistent, a match was never made. Um, and then I'm going to bring back up that wolf rank thing because when I read this, I remembered like when I was in Girl Scouts, I thought that candles had to do with like the initiation of like when you like go to another rank and I looked it up and it turns out that the wolf rank you do light blue candles so I just thought that that was that should be noted yeah and I mean I feel like even in like modern like uh occultism like or not even occultism but just sort of like stuff that has to do with like wicca and like magic and stuff like that like you don't really see a lot of blue candles like it's usually like if like it's a negative candle it's going to be like black or red you know like we're sticking with the satanic you know theme it wouldn't be like a blue candle that I could only imagine smells like fresh linen or something like that yeah so uh, this physical evidence was really just like crazy to me and then there was finally there was a necklace and this was never presented to the jury but there was a necklace found in Damien's home and it had blood on it consistent with one of the boys um but this blood was also consistent with Jason Baldwin, his best friend. So I'm like, it's not unheard of to think that like his best friend's DNA could be on this necklace. Wait, I'm confused. So, wait, so the the blood of one of the boys was found on the necklace? Yes, but it was also consistent with Jason Baldwin. So when they say consistent, it's like in a certain percent of the population. Okay, so because this was like before, like DNA was exactly, yeah, super okay. Gotcha. So they so can they only can... find like similarities. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, um, so I'm just saying, like, I would think like it'd probably be, it wouldn't be that far fetched to think that like his best friend's blood got on a necklace or like his best friend's DNA got on a necklace, you know? Yeah. Um, so on November 17th, Fogelman, who was working for the prosecution, contacted Arkansas State Police to dispatch um, a team of divers in Lakeshore Lake, located behind the trailer park where Damien and Jason lived. A short time later, a diver emerged holding a nine-inch survival knife located 47 feet behind Jason's home. It had a serrated edge. Weirdly, um, or no, um, a medical examiner that um, was looking at buyer's injuries determined that it was sustained by a serrated edge. And then I just put that weirdly, a reporter had already been called to the lake and was like ready to snap a picture when the diver pulled up the knife. And then later the diver reported that he was told exactly where to look for the knife. All of that seems sketch um, by the prosecution. Like they were like, yeah, it'll be, they were like, it'll be 47 feet out like this way. Like look in that area. Like planted it there or something like that. Kind of feels that way. I mean, if we've got fucking Jerry fucking driver over here. 
who was like saying he's a specialist <laughs> okay. I, i'm not putting it past this police department um yeah and then the reporter said that they received a tip-off saying come to lakeshore lake at this time so it was just really weird how all this went down um, right so miss kelly's trial began on january 18th 1994 in the opening statements by the prosecution we learned that michael and stevie had actually died from drowning um so they weren't dead when they were put in the water and then they died from Ugh. drowning I know. It's not like that, like, gives me the creeps, that part. Yeah, that's fucked up. I mean, this was, whole thing gives me the creeps, but, like, yeah. that part just, like, really has me weirded out. So it was, it was, um, Mike, and, you said Mike and, uh, Stevie. Stevie were the ones. So yeah. Christopher, the one that got mutilated, was. And Christopher was had died from multiple wounds. So I'm assuming, like, blood loss. Yeah. Did they? And, go ahead. I guess they probably didn't find any, like, like water in his lungs uh no so he was like Um, dead before he yeah that's terrible um and then something else to note is that they did find urine in the boys stomachs um so i know i I hate that i don't know i hate it um of course they couldn't test it yeah there was no way for them to really test that at the time um but just something to note um, on December 20th, release forms were signed by Dana Moore and John Mark Byers, permitting them to search their homes. Um, so on January 8th, 1994, police received a knife, a knife in the mail. The knife was eight um, and three quarter inches in length and was sent to the crime lab. Results reflected that blood on the knife was consistent with Christopher Byers. And when I say consistent, that means it's, it falls within 8% of the population in West Memphis. So pretty small percent. Um, so this scent was sent to the, or this knife was sent to the police by, um, the HBO filmmakers who were given it by John Mark Byers on December 19th. And remember his home was searched on December 20th. Like how weird that he gave that knife away the day before. That is weird. And sorry, we can cut this too if you want to, but. Um, lots of names john mark byers this was christopher byers stepfather oh okay gotcha yeah gotcha um but yeah when hbo film oh that's super sketchy isn't it (laughs) yeah Yeah, no that i get yeah no dad totally did it yeah so when they received it from john mark byers the hbo filmmakers noticed blood on the knife and they decided to give it over to the police um, so it was determined that blood and another unknown substance, which we later learn, um, was a red fiber, which weird that there's that consistency. Right, because there was green and red fibers, yeah. Yeah, um, was found in the fold of the knife. So on January 26, Byers was questioned. He initially said the knife had never been used. <laughs> and then- Oh, the well. <laughs> well, that's, the police were like, oh, well, that's weird because we found blood on the knife. Um, and then he's like, oh yeah, I used it to cut deer meat. And then um, that's when they said, well, the blood was consistent with, you know, Christopher. And after that, he's like, he had no idea how that got on there. So um, I just thought it was kind of important to note that like when I was reading throughout this interview, Gary Gitchell was like not as confrontational as he was with Jesse Miss Kelly. Cause like with Jesse Miss Kelly, he was like, tell me the truth. Like he was like threatening Miss Kelly, like all this craziness. But like with John Mark Byers, he was just like, okay, I understand. Like very like chill. When he literally so found he's... DNA. Okay. Okay. Gary Gitchell. 
Gary fucking Gitchell. So like he's just allowed to sit in on all of these interviews and help with the Well I'm Gary so Gitchell Gary Gitchell was the um head of the detective. Hang on, I had it written down somewhere. But he was more on like the police side. He wasn't running the prosecution's case. Fogelman was. Okay. I just thought that I for some reason I thought that he was just like some random guy who decided that he was a devil worshiping special. <laughs> so he he's no. actually a cop. Well no Jerry Driver is the he's the uh, devil worshiping or devil what do they call it? A call Jerry specialist. fucking driver. Okay, gotcha. Jerry fucking driver. Okay. Okay, so now that we got that all straightened out. Yes. Okay, <laughs> so re- uh, later results indicated that the blood was also consistent with John Mark Byers, which is weird because it's his stepfather, like their stepfather and stepson. So like, that's weird that their blood was consistent. Like it really shouldn't have been. Um, yeah. But who knows? I mean, it is like 8% of the population. But then once Byers found out this information, he said, oh yeah, I cut my thumb with that knife. His story just keeps on. It went from not being used at all to him cutting his thumb with it. And this is all retrieved like years later. No, this is, um, so where are we right now? We're two weeks into uh, Jesse Miss Kelly's trial. Okay, because you mentioned that, so the the knife (laughs) was, that was found in the lake. Yes. Are these two different, okay, this is the same knife. Two different knives. Oh, two different knives. Okay, completely different. But how did the HBO people get it and turn it in? John Mark Byers um, gave it to them the day before his house was searched. Oh, so HBO was like already like, like covering this live? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. That yeah, makes if more you sense watch the Paradise Lost documentaries, like they um, file, follow this case from beginning to end and they're actually in the courtrooms. Okay, I wonder if they're like, are they actual like HBO people or was it sold to HBO? Uh, no, they're listed as like, it says filmmakers from New York, but then it says with HBO. So, and even like when okay. you're watching the um, trials on TV, like they'll say, oh, it's those people from HBO. Okay, gotcha. So when, when did Paradise Lost come out? I think the first one was in the 90s, like after the first uh, couple cases. Gotcha. Okay. And then they okay. just put out gotcha. like newer ones, like as more information. Kind of like out. following. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so on February 4th, 1994, around noon, um, the jury came to a verdict on Jesse Miss Kelly. So Miss Kelly was found guilty in first degree murder on the case of Michael Moore and guilty of murder in the second degree for the cases of Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch. He was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. Isn't that wild? Like, that's wild. Yeah, I'm surprised, like, I mean, with an IQ like 70, you'd think you would go like to a mental institution if convicted or something, but. And I didn't add this in my notes, but um, when Miss Kelly first like met his attorneys, they, they said like later on when they were doing interviews, like they honestly thought he was guilty. And then they said, I guess like a pastor came in and gave him like a pamphlet and he's sitting there with the uh, attorneys and he's like trying to read this pamphlet and he's like, what's uh, satin? like the word satin and they were like what like what are you trying to say and they realized that he was trying to say satan Satan. and then that's like when it clicked for the attorneys they were like there's no way he could have did this because like he doesn't even know like what satan is i wonder if his defense was just like so just like 
just didn't think he was going to get convicted that they really didn't like if you read the book they thought they like had it in like they were like okay there's no way they'll convict him on this and then they did um so right after damien and jason's trial started the prosecution was basically presented the same evidence so i'm not going to go over it again Um, But evidence against Damien at trial included that he, like, I literally was writing this down as I was watching the trial on TV. So like, um, he listened to metal music, wore black, painted his nails black, drew pentagrams, practiced Wicca, and he read Stephen King. And I was like, (laughs) they're like, they're literally Mm -hmm. sitting in a courtroom, like presenting this, like, it's like real evidence. Like literally me when I was 15. Me now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like. I mean, minus, I don't do Wicca, but like everything else, I'm like, yep, no, that's me. Um, The only other thing too, is that they had a cellmate that was um, Jason's cellmate come in and he claimed that Jason confessed to him that he did the murders. Uh, But we later learned that this is like definitely not a credible source. And he actually comes on one of the documentaries. I think it's, he's on West of Memphis and he's like older and he totally recants his statements. He was like, I was like on drugs. Like I was going through a rough time in my life. Like I was lying about everything. So like, I wonder totally if he was trying credible. to get less time or something like that too. Probably. It's um, wild. Yeah, because even like the juvenile officer that was overseeing that kid like called over to the defense team and was like, "Hey, this kid's gonna come in and testify against like uh, Jason Baldwin, but like, do not listen to his statements. He's a liar." So, yeah. That's crazy. So on March eighteenth, nineteen ninety four, after about a day and a half deliberation um, from the jury, they came to a verdict. Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were both found guilty on capital murder. Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life imprisonment and Damien Eccles was sentenced to death. Like that's wild, right? Um, so is what's the difference between capital murder and first degree murder? Um, I think just capital is that you could be sentenced to death. Yeah. Okay. Damn. That would yeah. not be fun. So following the trial, all three put in multiple appeals. Um, Again, I'm not going to get into all of them because there was like, there was a ton, but um, they were all denied by Judge Burnett because weirdly, whoever sees, oversees the first case, he's the one who oversees the appeals and can approve or deny them. And I'm like, somehow that seems unfair because like they already made the decision on the first one. Well, how do you even appeal to the Supreme Court then? Like, that just seems like a violation of human rights. Well, so apparently you have to go through all the appeals at the state level because before you can go up to the Supreme Court. Oh, so if they just keep on getting denied and denied, you'll eventually be able to go to the next one? Yes, but then the Supreme Court is like literally your last hope. Like if the Supreme Court denies it, like you're done. Mm-hmm. So, and they were actually, we're going to learn they were right there. So um, you can see their efforts in the documentaries and books, but they basically took matters into their own hands. So in 1998, so four years later, Damien Eccles' defense team decided to re-examine the bite marks made on C.B. Branch's face. After thorough testing and analysis, it was confirmed that Miss Kelly, Eccles, and Baldwin were not a match for the bite marks. And it's important to note um, that Mark Byers would not give teeth impressions. Um, remember, that's Christopher Byers' stepfather. Mm. But... Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't matter anyway because uh, Mark Byers had his teeth removed in 1997. Was there a reason for this? Did well, he have like some funny you should ask? Disease? His reason just keeps on changing. 
he said in one uh, one clip that it was you know he had a disease and they rotted out and then in another clip he said he knocked him out and then there was like another clip it was something else and it's like how do you not remember how you lost your teeth yeah that's super sketchy yeah um so in 2004 also a fireproof lockbox was found in terry hobbs's home and remember terry hobbs is stevie branch's stepfather um where a partial denture was found but that was not tested either so just put that out there in 2003 vicki hutchinson gave an interview to the arkansas times and recanted literally everything that she ever said including her testimony at trial she was the one that went to the orgy yeah that was all fake fucking vicky yep and she actually said that that um tape that she took in remember she took in the tape recorder and she was going to get her tape recording fm and they said it, they couldn't hear it and that they lost it or whatever. She said it was perfectly clear. And she said that, and she, you can watch her on, I think it's on West of Memphis. And she's literally sitting there crying. She's like, I'm such a liar. She was like, that whole time on the tape recording, he was saying, they're going to try and convict me because I'm weird. Damn. So I wonder what her motive was. Like The $35,000. And then. Oh, she, right. I keep yeah. forgetting about that. Can you get $35,000? <laughs> and then she said, well, I mean, and then I kind of feel for her too, because she said the police implied that if she didn't cooperate, they would take away her child. I mean, that's fucked up. Isn't and it? is it normal to have like, I mean, I feel like I hear about cash rewards for things, but I feel like it's mostly like, like people that are like missing and things like that. Like, I feel like you're just. Well, I feel like, and I, I think there is usually rewards for information, but I think the police normally see if it's like a real lead or like if it's actual information, they don't try and make their own information. Do they give the $35,000 to everyone who comes forward with information or just? Mm, that I don't know. Weird. And I don't think she ever got her 35000 So this was all for nothing. God damn it. <laughs> um, someone did. So in 2007, a new batch of DNA testing was conducted, none of which matched Eccles, Baldwin, or Miss Kelly. This DNA testing showed that a hair containing DNA consistent with Terry Hobbs was found in one of the ligatures used to tie the boys. So like and literally Terry, Terry Hobbs is the stepdad. Yeah, see Stevie Branch's stepdad. So the, the little Stevie's blonde boys. Yeah. Um, yeah, his hair was found like tied into the knot. Um, and then another hair was found on a tree root at the scene of the crime containing DNA of David Jacoby, who is Terry Hobbs's best friend. Okay. Yeah, wild. Mind you, uh, all three of these boys are still in jail. Um, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly. Still? They're all still in jail at this point. No, not oh, right now. Oh, God. Okay, um, good. So West Memphis 3 defense team hired a forensic pathologist, Dr. Warner Spitz, and forensic scientist, Dr. John Norby, who concluded that the genital wounds on Christopher Byers were from post-mortem animal predation. Um, so kind of what you were asking, you were like, okay, is it from humans or is it from animals? Right. And I'm actually remembering, uh, when I was listening to one of the podcasts about this. So apparently that's not super unusual. If you're underneath the water, um, the parts that like animals go for first are like your ears, your, you know, and that's literally penis. exactly like, what they said. It's just like the softer tissue or whatever. Yeah, that's literally exactly what they said. And multiple forensic pathologists 
um, agreed that these wounds were likely inflicted by turtles. And the water, like that little water area in Robin Hood Hill was referred to as uh, Turtle Hill. Turtle Hill? Turtle, it was like turtle something. Turtle City, that's what they called it. Yeah, so there were tons of turtles. Um, in one of the documentaries, you can see them taking their findings to the assistant medical examiner who worked on the case and they asked him to reconsider his findings and like kind of change what he found. And he doesn't really care and he doesn't change them. And then I thought it was also important to note that that assistant medical examiner who did the autopsies for the, the case, um, he wasn't board certified. And you get five oh. chances to take your test, but he must have failed all five. I mean, they still just gave him a job. They got him a job and they gave him one of the craziest cases too. So it's just crazy to me that like none of these, at least so far, suspects are linked to the police. I was kind of thinking the same thing. Um, it just seems way too convenient. I will say we are going to talk about John Mark Byers and Terry Hobbs a little later, and you are going to see there is some connections. Okay. So in 2011, David Burnett became a Arkansas Democratic state senator representing District 22 and held that position until 2017, which is absolutely terrifying. So that judge that oversaw their case was a senator for years. Okay. Um, but later, but then when he got that job, that means he was replaced by David or Judge David Laser, which was kind of a good thing because um, David Laser re-examined the case. And on August 19th, 2011, he offered Baldwin, Miss Kelly and Eccles an Alfred plea. So in an Alfred plea, you basically have to sign off saying that you're guilty um, and then you're you're allowed to go free. And, but you're not allowed to like sue the government for any misdoings, right? Exactly, because you're technically saying you were guilty. Well, that just doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Um, but so Damien got the plea first and he signed it because he was literally on death row and he's like, all right, well, right. I got nothing to lose. Um, Jesse Miss Kelly received it second and he signed off on it. The last to receive it was Jason Baldwin. Um, oh, and also part of the plea was that all three of them had to sign off on it in order for it to go into effect. So that's the important part. Um, so, Jason, so Jesse and D Damien signed off on it. Yes. Uh, Jason was the last to get it. And honestly, I love Jason. He literally, he straight up said, he was like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison to prove my innocence. He was like, screw you guys like screw your plea but um he realized that Damien was on death row so he did end up signing it because Ugh. otherwise they literally would have killed Damien right um so yeah does it make sense why Jesse and Damien would because Jesse has the low IQ and Damien is on death row but damn that's a tricky situation to be in yeah he really just did it for his friend and there's like a scene in Paradise Lost where like um Oh, it's like so emotional, like where, cause you see, you actually see them on the day that they signed their plea. So it's August 19th, 2011, and they all signed their plea. And after they signed the plea, they can literally just get up and walk away, which is so insane to me. Um, and you see them being interviewed. And then Jason kind of says that he was like, they were going to kill Damien and they like get up and hug each other. And I was like, oh, like, uh -huh. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so they all still asserted their innocence. Um, and on that day, they all walked free. So the three are still working towards full exoneration. Um, so they're literally putting their efforts towards finding who did this because they want to, they want everybody to know that they're innocent. And, right. And at the end of the day, there's three kids that are just dead. 
and that's the thing too. I'm like, why would you, well, so this is the interesting part. So they asked the state of Arkansas, they were like, so are you going to keep working on this case? And the state of Arkansas um, said they found the people who were guilty of the crime and that the case is closed. So they're done looking for the people. But they didn't say like who it was or were they, or is it just implied that it was those three? Well, cause because since they signed off they, and they were guilty. They said that they're right. guilty. And even like um, Damien's defense team was like, if you honestly thought these three people were guilty, were guilty, you would never let them walk out of this prison. Right. Um, That's got to be like a super unique situation. Yeah. And on that day, like in 2011, so Pam Hobbs and John Mark Byers were in support of the West Memphis Three. All right. And Pam and Mark were, which one's dad? Pam is Stevie Branch's mom, and John Mark Byers is step uh, Christopher Byers' stepfather. With the knife. Okay. With the sketchy knife. Yeah. And they both said that they don't think that he killed them. Yeah, they don't think they did it. Hmm. Um, so let's get into, since that's kind of like, that's the case. Um where it stands right now. So I do want to talk a little bit about John Mark Byers and um, Terry Hobbs, just because I think they're sketchy and like the police never investigated them. So John Mark Byers is described as a pawnbroker, jeweler by trade, drug dealer, friend of the police and confidential informant for the Crittenden County Drug Task Force. So he was oh, an so informant. He's just, he's just a snitch. <laughs> he was doing all the things. Um, so in September 1987, Byers threatened to kill his first wife, and it actually became physical. Warrant was issued for his arrest, um, and he was sentenced to three years probation. No record of this assault was included in his file when investigating the murders. In July 1992, nine months before the murders, Byers was arrested in Memphis for conspiring to sell cocaine and carrying a dangerous weapon. They booked him in the county jail, but he was released for no reason. Like, no one knows why he was literally just released, which makes me wonder if it was related to him being an informant. I would assume that would give you a little bit of leeway with the cops. Yeah. And then during the time of the murders, USPS was investigating two missing Rolex watches valued at $11,000. They were reported to be delivered, but Byers claimed he never received them. Eventually, USPS had conclusive evidence that Byers did indeed receive the watches and he sold them. Um and then there was a tip call into the police following the murder saying that Byers had been in rehab using methadone and had a brain tumor. And the officer on the other line taking notes wrote this down, but underneath like wrote old news in huge letters and underlined it. So I guess they kind of were like already familiar with him. Hmm. And then on the day of the murders, so this is just kind of like his alibi. Um, Byers reports taking his stepson Ryan to court around 350. Um, Ryan had to be a witness in a traffic dispute. After taking Ryan, he drove to Memphis to pick up his wife, Melissa, from work. On the way, he spotted Christopher riding his skateboard belly down, so I guess kind of like laying on his skateboard. Um, he drove Christopher back home, made him hold onto the kitchen bar, and gave him a few licks, as he said, so he like, he whipped him. Um, but he hit him with the belt for breaking the seal on the window. So I guess Christopher like tried to climb in one of the windows and broke the seal. Um, then told him to clean the yard. So Byers left at 5.30 to go back and pick up Ryan. He said that he and Ryan um, were back home at 6.15 and they noticed Christopher was not home and the search began at 6.20. Okay. So following the murders, Mark and Melissa Byers 
stole $20,000 in property from their neighbors and had $700 in bad checks. Um, they picked up and moved to Cherokee Village. Um, there, Mark Byers, yeah, there, Mark Byers spanked a neighbor's five-year-old and actually left bruising. I just thought that was really weird. Um, he also gave one of the neighbor's sons a knife and held the neighbor at gunpoint while his son assaulted him. I thought that was freaking weird. I'm like, like what? Yeah, that's really fucking weird. <laughs> that's like, um, that's that's definitely illegal. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, the last thing I just thought was really bizarre was like uh, Melissa Byers, his wife, uh, Christopher's mom. Uh, she passed away in their home and her cause of death was undetermined. Mm, I had to guess. I had to so, there. That's a little bit on Mark Byers. And he actually, I forgot to write this down, but he passed away. Um, a couple years ago, I think it was like 2016 or 2017, in a car crash. Well, may, may he rot in hell. <laughs> well, that's that's intense. Um, Terry Hobbs. Well, he was a shitty person. <laughs> Even I mean, if he, didn't he did do it. <laughs> he did do a couple of shitty things. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty terrible. So Terry Hobbs, who was Stevie Branch's stepfather, um, right. Pam's Pam uh, Stevie's mom, her family accused Terry of the murders which I thought, I think that says a lot. Like when someone's family accuses them of the murders, Terry was never interrogated by the police. On June 21st, 2007, Terry Hobbs was officially questioned. At 5 p.m., Terry left Pam at her place of work. At 9 p.m., he came back to pick her up. Terry says in between, he searched the neighborhood with Amanda, um, the daughter, ran into Dana Moore and went back to Dana's house. There he met up with Mark Byers in front of the Byers house at 6 p.m., this is impossible because um, it would have had to have happened after Byers filed a missing persons report, and that wasn't until 8.30. Okay. And Byers filed an affidavit saying that he did not see Hobbs at this time. Terry says that he and David Jacoby were in Robin Hood Hills from 6 to 6.30 looking for Stevie, but Jacoby says he was not with Terry with this time. David Jacoby says that Terry left his house twice from 6 to 8.30, and so it is completely unaccounted for. Um, so that's kind of his alibi unaccounted for and they asked him about it one time. No. yeah they asked him about it on no, like an right. interview they were like what do you have to say like where were you where when you're completely unaccounted for and he's like well i don't know and i'm like what i don't know and then he's like laughing about it like i don't know i just thought it was really bizarre no so essentially we think with this it's um Terry, Steve, and was there a third guy too? My what for? For like sketchy people that were unaccounted for. No, uh, just Terry and Mark Byers. Oh, okay. Who's which one? Steve. Who's and Steve is Terry's best friend. No, Steve, Stevie is one Sorry. of the boys who it was. Um, oh, heard. okay. Yeah, I see what I did with, with those notes there. Okay, so. Mark, seem seem pretty guilty. You got lots of notes. I got more on Terry Hobbs. Okay. So a neighbor reported seeing the boys um, on the day they were murdered around six thirty, and she saw Terry Hobbs calling them over. Hmm. Sketch. Um, and then on July twenty first, two thousand nine, Terry Hobbs was required to give a disposition because of a case he raised against Natalie Maine from the Dixie Chicks. So. Um, Basically, when Damien, when um, Jason and uh, Jelly, uh, um, Jelly, Jesse <laughs> were all in prison, they had a lot of support from celebrities. Um, and Natalie Maine from the Dixie Chicks was one of them. And she like was giving this um, speech and 
she just said something about like the DNA or something or trying to find out who did it. And Terry Hobbs like took it as a weird personal attack, which that's freaking weird that he did. And then Unless you actually did it literally and then raised the <clears> case <throat> against her. But anyway, he was required to give a disposition. So Mildred French, Terry Hobbs's neighbor um, from a long time ago when he was with his first wife, reported that she heard a baby crying and thought that he was beating his wife and possibly child. She ran over and tried to ask what was going on um, and told her to mind her business. Months later, Mildred French, French was in the bathtub and was going to grab a towel when Terry Hobbs, who had broken into her home, somehow had gotten upstairs and physically attacked her. Um, she was screaming and ultimately Terry ran out of the house. Police were called, but Terry denied this ever happening. <laughs> Literally. Terry's just like, I'm just going to be the shittiest person possible and I'm just going to tattletale on everyone else so oh, I don't get in trouble for anything. Just wait, it gets worse. Um, so Judy oh, Sadler, God. Stevie Branch's aunt, said Terry always creeped her out. Once Stevie confided in her that Terry would whoop him and leave belt marks. He also said that Terry would lock him in a closet. Stevie said Terry would make him want, make Stevie watch him masturbate and then force Stevie to do sexual acts on his little sister, Amanda. Oh no. Yeah. And then Marie Hicks, Stevie's grandmother, actually saw the welts from the belt on him. So, like, when Stevie told, um, I guess, Judy Sadler that he got whipped with the belt, like, you could literally see, like, the belt marks. So, so when, like, because Terry, Terry tried to say, like, none of this was true. Like, we know that there was witnesses. Um, so Cindy Hobbs, Terry Hobbs's sister, um, on the other hand, she claims everything was fine and dandy. She said when she lived there, it was a very happy time. Hmm. But that's his sister, so yeah, I feel like she's gonna say good stuff. Um, and then Pam says that once Terry made a comment to his mother that Pam paid more attention to being a mother than being a wife. I'm like, that's weird to say. Yeah, yeah. And then Amanda Hobbs used to tell her mother that her dad, quote unquote, messed with her. In her diary entries, she says she has a hard time remembering the past and blames it on her trauma. She said she doesn't exactly remember her father molesting her, but um, she does remember him, quote unquote, beating the hell out of her. Ex-girlfriend Sharon Nelson left a disposition saying that Terry would beat Amanda so badly that he left deep bruises on her. Terry claims that he never hit her. Um, Stevie asked Pam to leave um, Terry two weeks before he was murdered. And then this part was crazy to me. So Stevie Branch's pocket knife was found in Terry Hobbs's lockbox. And Pam says that Stevie should have never been found without that pocket knife on him. Like, apparently he kept that pocket knife, like, in his pocket all the time. Um, and she said she oh knew God. he had it on the day of the murders. Pam Hobbs uh, supports the West Memphis Three. Um, and then in a recent interview that I listened to him from this past year, Terry believes they're still guilty. Well, based on, you know, he seems like he would have reason to think they're still guilty. Literally. Or have a motive for thinking they're so guilty yeah a lot of people showed up for them wasn't do you did you make a list of like the names of the different artists that um supported them I feel like metallica maybe uh i'm pretty sure metallica did i know pearl jam did i know steve or johnny depp did dixie chicks um i know peter jackson did there was a lot of people and then um Basically, the reason why I wanted to cover this case is because as of December 22nd of this year, Damien's team is still working to prove his innocence. He was on a podcast a few months ago talking about how his team requested access to DNA evidence for more testing. The police department tried to claim that it was destroyed in a fire. Um, Mara Leverett, who wrote Devil's Knot, um, she contacted local fire departments to see if she could find any proof of a fire. 
And turns out there was no fire. All the evidence still exists. And as of December this year, Damien's team is down there right now getting the evidence um, and testing it for DNA. Um, weirdly, the chief of police made an official announcement for his resignation on December 24th and made sure to put in his announcement that it is no way related to the West Memphis Three. Weird. Why would you put that in there if it's not? Yeah. And then according to Damien, the new DNA evidence can pick up who actually tied the ligatures. Um, like it's, it can pick up those skin and cuticles and tell you who did it. And hopefully we'll have the answer to who did this in the coming months. Wow, that is a crazy story. Yeah, so hopefully justice will finally be served for these boys because I feel like I feel like um, the justice system kind of just wanted to sweep it under the rug. Yeah, definitely. And so the um, the fibers that you mentioned that were underwater, they still had some some DNA that's testable. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, they yeah. had the the ligatures, the the shoelaces. They found skin and cuticle in there, and at the time they weren't able to test oh, it for they DNA, test but. It. Okay. Now they can. Yeah, I think it was definitely Terry Hobbs. And That's kind of what I think. Like, he just sounds real sketch. And Mark was was the stepdad's name? Yeah. Yeah, because, like, I'm just trying to think, like, you know, regardless of, like, who did it, the fact of the matter is three kids were found naked without their clothes on, tied down to the bottom of a swampy marshy area um one had bite marks and you said that because we mentioned that you know the the castration um the mutilation i just because you said that only mike and stevie were um were drowned allegedly so i just wonder wasn't what yeah, so what could have, because I mean, you know, I would think if he was actually like mutilated, you know, that would explain the situation, like where all the, like the blood loss, but. I feel like it changes it when we bring in the turtles, but then again, they were beat on their head. So I feel like that would cause a lot of blood loss too. And then something they brought so, into the case was like, what if it happened somewhere else? And then they brought right. the kids there. Right. Yeah, and I, I just would be interested to know how far away the trailer park was from the suburbs. It just seems like no one really would have had any motive, but like, I don't, like, all I can think of is so Steve and if, if, if we're going to say that it was, you know, uh, not Steve, um, it was um, Terry and Mark. I guess one potential would be like they went looking for the kid. Maybe Mark hit the kid too hard or something like that. And then to cover it up, they killed the other two kids. Yeah, that seems extreme though. It does. And then I also put like, just like, I put some like little like just like theories like as you were talking, just because I haven't brushed up on it by a while. But for a while, but I mean, you mentioned that they were all Boy Scouts, and then you mentioned that they were tied with different types of knots. I wonder if, like, I, I just put, like, Scoutmaster with a question mark, like. Well, so funny you should say that. Their Scout, uh, well, Scoutmaster, whatever it's called, or um, that was Michael Moore's father. 
Oh. And they don't really okay. go. There was not much information on um, on him. Like there was just not really nothing. I don't know if they just didn't interrogate him or question him or anything. I don't know if he had a sound alibi. I don't know. It's just it's crazy to me that no one would have like um, like one of these spouses or something like that over all of these years wouldn't have some type of like I don't know it just seems like the moms would at least of Stevie well she thinks that Terry did it she thinks Terry did it and um Mark wasn't involved you oh you think both the stepdads did it together well wasn't um wasn't Mark uh Terry's best friend no, David Jacoby. Oh, so David and David was Christopher's dad? No. No, he wasn't anyone's dad. He was just Terry's best friend. Oh, okay. But they found his DNA there. So Terry and Jacob could have done it. Weird. Yeah, I and personally then... think it's going to end up being either a parent or someone close to the kids. Um, or I think it's going to be one of those leads that they just never checked out. Yeah. The urine in the stomach thing is really weird. Yeah. Bizarre. Cause that makes it even like, not that it's practical, you know, either way, but I just don't get the, the logic behind that. And I get, and there was no evidence of sexual assault. No. I mean, they were also in the water, so, you know. Well, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, but I feel like there would be uh, some kind of trauma that shows that. Right. And Terry was the was suspected of sexually abusing his kids, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, not looking great for Terry, especially the fact that after all for these- Terry. I mean, especially after all these years, just being like, yeah, I think they still did it when there's literally... I just, yeah, I think that's that's the bizarre part for me because it's so apparent that... But then again, I say that, but as I was doing the research, and I'm not even going to shout out the podcast, but there are so many podcasts that uh, think that the West Memphis Three are guilty. And I'm like, how? Like, because otherwise they wouldn't be sitting here pouring their own money and time into it to try and figure out who did it, you know? Yeah, because I mean... If they were guilty, that would mean that Jason, Damien, and Jesse, someone who they don't even really hang out with that often, just happened upon three kids and decided that they were going to drown them and beat them up. Yeah, and that just doesn't sound reasonable to me. And if you look at, like, um, because so for a while they were thinking, like, maybe they were murdered somewhere else and then brought there. Dude, if you look at a picture of Jason Baldwin, he's tiny. Even actually, Damien's pretty tiny, too. He's not, I don't think he's a very big guy. And it would have taken work. You would have, I mean, like, you know, obviously these are young kids. So, I mean, they would be easily overpowered, but to know how to tie knots like that to I'm surprised it had to be so that's another reason why I was like Scoutmaster maybe because like 
that was where my mind went at first. Shoelaces so. are so thin. Like I wouldn't even think you could hog tie someone with their shoelaces. Like, yeah. I wouldn't think that they would be able to support movement. And, but that would also, the fact that they were hog tied would also kind of indicate that maybe they were moved. Yeah. Cause that would make them easier to transport. I don't know, but I guess we'll find out in a couple months, hopefully when they run this DNA evidence. What are your, um, what are your like theories? My theories? Um, well, like I said, I think it's probably going to end up being a parent or it's going to end up being one of the leads that they didn't follow. Because yeah. so um, even John Douglas, who's like, um, he founded the behavioral science anal- analysis unit in the FBI. Um, he mm-hmm. said, it's more than likely someone that was probably already interviewed or very close to the case because it was blunt force trauma to the head. That usually means a personal connection to the kids. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm thinking. It's just weird. It's like all of this information is sort of like, it's very spinning. Like, yeah, it really does. (laughs) That's how I was because I was going to do this um, earlier and then I kept getting more info and more info. I was like, wait, I don't know. But it's so clear to me that like uh, Damien, Jason and Jesse are, they didn't do it, you know? No, it it definitely doesn't look that way. I mean, and blood force trauma, but that's why I'm like getting like all like worked up about the hog ties and stuff. Cause like, I feel like if it was blunt force trauma, it would be more likely to have happened in the moment, like in a heat of like passion or something like that. But they never found anything. They didn't, they didn't specify what they thought caused the blunt force trauma. Just. Yeah, they didn't say. Um, In like a very early report, they said it could have been like a hammer type object, but. That would leave a very specific kind of indentation, I would think. Yeah. And then when they tried well, to say it, when they tried to say it was Damien and uh, Jason, they found like these sticks, and they tried to say it was the sticks, but I don't think anything was ever found on the sticks. So I don't think they know, you know. I don't know. I just feel like I feel like they need to look into. I mean, they've already looked into Terry. I think they should definitely look into old Scout Leader. Yeah, I agree because well. I was kind of thinking the same thing when I first heard about the case. There's just so much interconnectivity between the victim's parents and stuff like that. It would kind of stand to reason that if they were all involved in some way, shape, or form. Because they all seem to be sketchy, right? Like, um, eh, I mean, well, the Moors seem to be the least sketchy, but also they didn't give a ton of information on them. That was a scoutmaster, right? Yeah the Mike Moore okay and and Stevie obviously his parents seemed pretty bad uh but yeah so final thoughts (laughs) I mean I have so many like how I don't know the knife is weird I I don't know I think everybody's weird. weird Like, there's so many people that I feel like they could come back with the DNA and it'd be theirs and I'd be like, I could see it, you know? Yeah, or just some completely, like, random person. True. That was just a serial killer in the, that was passing by or something like that. Could be. Um, it, but yeah. it does seem like it would take more than one person to, I mean, I know they were young and stuff, but. I feel like there would have to be more than one person involved. Could be. 
I, yeah, I kind of feel like that too because it's three kids. That's like a lot. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like, they wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. Like, how could one person murder all, like, after they murdered the first kid, I feel like the other two would run or do something, you know? Yeah. Damn. Well, that's unsatisfying. I surely want to know the answer. <laughs> well, maybe we will in the coming months. But yeah, that is the case of the West Memphis Three. Um, yeah, and you can actually follow, I think Damien Eccles is pretty uh, active on social media and he usually posts updates on his Twitter. So if you follow him on his Twitter, you'll get like updates. But yeah, and we'll keep you posted. I mean, because I want to keep doing these get spooky things like once every month or so. And if there is an update in the case or a break in the case, I'd love to kind of mention it. Yeah. And I just pulled up a report just in terms of like the different people who um, the different celebrities that got involved with um, with the case. Um, so Henry Rollins. Um, uh, he was in Black Flag, I believe. Um, Iggy Pop, Ice-T. I love that Ice-T was on the right side of history here. Um, seems like there were more than that, even. Pearl Jam, you mentioned them. Um, Natalie Maines, mentioned her. Yeah, there was a lot. So, I, mean, I mean, it was a big, it's a big case. Yep, Johnny Depp. I mean, yeah, and I mean, good on these people for using their platform to talk about something. Hopefully they weren't all just doing it for I mean, they couldn't all, all have just been doing it for press, but, um, oh, Margaret Cho, she was one. Winona Ryder. Yeah, she was also a huge one. I forgot to mention her. Uh, Peter Jackson, the guy who directed uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, yep, him and his partner, Fran Walsh, pay, helped pay out of pocket for various investigation efforts on the Three's defense. It's crazy. It is. It's crazy. So, yeah, I definitely want to keep doing these, though. I want to do them monthly. Um, if there's any cases that you guys want to listen to, um, send them over to us, because I'd love to do a deep dive on whatever case you guys are interested in. Otherwise, I'll just keep coming up with cases. You know I'm crazy, and I sit around, and I watch documentaries and stuff all the time. Yeah, I want to do one, too. Yes. I want to get my true crime on. I actually have a few that, um, that come to mind. But... Yes. Um, so yes, give us a follow. Um, we are on Instagram. It's getmessy.podcast. And then we are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to listen. We post our videos to YouTube. Right now we're currently posting them to my platform. So live L-I-V-D-U-M-E-R. Um, and then Max, do you want to plug yourself? Oh, TikTok. We, yes, we, we right. do it on TikTok too. We've been a little bit inactive just the past two episodes. We've been recording um recording remotely so apologies for any issues with you know the vocals hopefully by next week we'll be able to do this in person again um but yeah thanks everyone for listening yeah did you want to plug yourself oh yeah yeah obviously and as always give me a follow um instagram is probably what i'm most active on it's a uh, mxlndn um so yeah give me a follow Love it. And then you can find me at LivDumer, L-I-V-D-U-M-E-R on Instagram. Um, but yeah, stay tuned. And we are going to post our weekly episode on Thursdays. So keep an eye out for that. All right. Yep. Thanks for listening. Bye. Talk to you guys later.